calling the language therapy clinic. For English, press 1. To join America the Bilingual, keep listening. It ended up in a, in a room and I was surrounded by, I think, uh, around seven older French gentlemen who were sitting behind a desk staring me down. And they said, Mr. Wolf, obviously you're a, a smart guy. We see your grades. And we also see that you're a tennis champion. That's really nice. We don't really care about that because we're, we're French. But you've obviously prepared for your interviews and you've been able to speak in French on certain subjects. But honestly, we, we don't think you have the level of French to succeed at this school. This is David Wolf remembering a pivotal day in his 20s. We'll come back to David's story, but first, let me welcome you to America the Bilingual, a podcast for monolinguals like me who are learning their second language or would like to start. I'm Steve Levine. In this episode, we're going to hear from an American native English speaker who encountered highs and lows on his journey to bilingualism. Let me fill you in on the story he's telling. This was in the summer after he graduated from college at UCLA. He had been accepted into a master's program at Oxford and had decided to go over to England a few months early. I spent a number of months there because I wanted to immerse myself a bit in the culture. And then there was a little bit of a twist of fate. I decided since I wasn't that far from Paris, Uh, You know, the countries are close to each other in Europe. I I thought that I'd go spend a week in Paris. David had taken French in high school and college, mostly to satisfy requirements, but wasn't at all proficient. When David went to France that fateful week in the summer after college, he fell in love. I hesitate to use the word, but, you know, almost a fairy tale in terms of... incredible people I met, and incredible food I ate, and, and learning about more about the history and the culture and the language and, and the quality of life. And it, it, was just, it was just such a special experience that I stayed, and then I stayed a little longer, and then I stayed a little longer. And he made friends with some students. I think it was at a party one night with these uh, wonderful young French people, and they told me that they were first-year students at this business school and that I should forget this silly nonsense of going to Oxford and I should apply to their business school. The initials of this school are HEC, and it stands for Haute Etude Commerciale. And he listened to them. He applied to this French business school and now he was before the French Inquisition. And so they said, we don't think you have the level of French to succeed at this school. What are you going to do when we reject you? That was a, it was a body blow, and I was trying to think of possible answers. And I looked at them, and I, I said, if you reject me, I will be forced to accept my full ride to Oxford and... As you gentlemen know, Oxford is considered one of the better institutions in the world. But between all of you gentlemen and myself, I would prefer to go to your school. 
And I think that I, in that one phrase, I pressed the French pride button that is the size of the Grand Canyon vis-a-vis -vis the British. <laughs> and, and they let me in the school. David's accepted, but then comes one of the biggest decisions of his life. Should he actually go? Should he abandon Oxford to attend a French business school few Americans have heard of? I was sweating out the decision, and what I do when I have important decisions to make is I ask a lot of people who I know and respect, and almost everybody I asked told me that I was an idiot for even asking the question, and that nobody in their right mind turns down, a, no American in their right mind turns down a full ride to Oxford to consider the going to this French business school, which was perhaps the number one business school in, in France, but still... You know, most Americans have, have never heard of it, and so, therefore, it was just not a smart thing to consider. And what did his parents think? My parents were, the, were among the only people to say, you know, life, life can be a wonderful adventure if you open up your heart and mind to things. If you want to do the, the France thing, then have at it. How did you feel about their support? Oh, I, I love them for it. So David takes the plunge. He enrolls in the French business school. He's elated. But suddenly, the honeymoon was over. You know, I was a young and cocky kid, and when those old French guys were staring me down, asking me what I would do when they rejected me, I thought that they were silly and didn't know what they were talking about, and if they would just let me in, it would be fine. And my French was decent enough so that I could get by, and then I would just get better and better, and, and, and things would be fine. That's not quite what happened. When you're in a classroom setting and there's a 60-year-old professor who sort of mumbles and talks at 100 miles an hour about a topic that you don't understand very well in a language that you don't master, bottom line was that in many cases I couldn't understand what was going on. So what happened? They put me on, on notice, and they said if there wasn't a substantial improvement in the you know, near to medium term, that we might have to find other alternatives. It was uh, a really bad place to be for me, and I, I started thinking I had made a terrible mistake. David told me he had never failed at anything, and that he was at a low point in his life. A friend of mine came up to me one day, I must have been looking, part, looking and feeling particularly sorry for myself, and he came up to me and he said, David, you don't, you don't look so good, you know, what's the matter? And I, I said, well, Gilles, you know, it's nice of you to ask, but the truth is I'm really not doing well at all. You know, I, I turned down my full ride to Oxford, I thought I could give this friend school a go, and, and uh, I'm not going well at all and I might fail out and, and this is like a low point in my life. Can you remember a time when you reached out to a friend in need or when a friend reached out to you? And he looked at me and he said, I want you to go pack your bags and I'm going to take you to my hometown of Toulouse. We're going to have a great time and then I'm going to take you to Saint-Emilion in Bordeaux, where I know several uh, fantastic chateau owners and 
we're going to eat and drink like never ate and drank before. And during this trip, we'll really brainstorm a lot about putting together a, an emergency plan for you to help save your silly American butt. And I looked at him, and I said, wow, you know, that is that's so kind of you to say that, but I can't just, we can't just up and go. We have class. We have classes. And he looks at me, and he smiles, and he goes, well, what's the difference? You don't understand anything. <laughs> so the logic, they say, you know, logique impeccable in French. I just said, you know, logique impeccable. So I, I found his, his logic to be impeccable. And so I went and I packed my things. We went off and just had a blast. And then he brought me to Saint-Emilion and, and I had never eaten stuff that good or drank wine that good in my entire life. And it was just, just fantastic. And he came through on his promise and we... You know, he helped put together a plan that involved tutoring, that involved going, talking to the teachers and doing, you know, more group assignments and, you know, sort of extending the the time that the school would give me, uh, they would give me a little more runway. It was shortly after that, when David returns to school, that everything changed. I can't remember exactly when it happened, but... Close to the time where the runway was running out, I woke up, it, it felt as if I woke up one morning and understood everything, as if the light switch had gone on. From that day, it was relatively easy. So when you said that, I have some image of uh, Dorothy awakening in Oz and <laughs> opening the door and everything's in color. Is that kind of what it was like? It, yes, that, that, it's funny. So, so perhaps in reality, it was more gradual than that. But 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 your your Dorothy anecdote is is how I I remember experiencing it. When I try to stick to Spanish as an intermediate speaker, I find it torturous. I always fall back on English, but David resisted. The entire time I had a strategy to try and get there, and the strategy was very painful for me. But the strategy was not to speak a word of English. There there's so many words you don't know and, and, and you're so limited in how you can express yourself and it's so easy to you know lapse back into English or to seek out American friends and just you know just take the pressure off and it, it, sometimes it felt excruciating but I just felt like I wasn't going to use the crutch David if some of his motivation to master French came from his decision to abandon Oxford in other words to prove that he wasn't wrong well I think I think that I would have been embarrassed and humiliated if I turned down something very prestigious against the advice of most people I knew and respected instead of that I, I wasn't able to make a success out of it but there was something else too or rather someone else her name was Katya and she was half French half Swedish and seemed to have the best traits of both cultures and she was just absolutely wonderful because if you're madly in love with someone and you want to spend tons of time with them and 
and you're you're intimate and you always speak in French, um, you know, then you're just on the accelerated curve. You're only one great romance away from fluency. Fast forward two years. David was soon going to graduate, but what about a job? It's one thing to get a degree, quite another to get a paycheck. I think it was a few weeks before I graduated, I went to a conference, and one of the speakers at the conference was a guy named Alain Dominique Perrin, who was the global CEO of Cartier. And he seemed to encompass the elegance of the French, but had certain dynamism that I had associated more with American businessmen. And I went home after, after the conference and I wrote him a letter. Uh, which, by the way, is not a very French thing to do at all. And, and a lot of my friends at business school said, you know, you can't really do that. That's very American to do that. And I sent it off, and I expected his assistant's assistant's intern to toss it out. And the next and thing I, I knew, I set up, all. and I was hired at the <laughs> Cartier International headquarters. So David was an American in Paris. He was shocked to learn that of the 200 people working at Cartier headquarters, 198 were French. I think there was a Spanish guy and me. So <laughs> it, and was re- it was really French. Did anyone ask the CEO why he went to bat for this young American? So people asked him, they said, why, you know, why did you hire David? And he said something like, well, I've never met an American before who was so in love with France that they were willing to study business here. After three years at Cartier, David takes a job back in California he planned to return to France to open a European office, but, well, you know how these things go. That was 20 years ago. David met and married an American, who also speaks French fluently. They are blessed with two daughters. But they decide to speak English to their babies. Why didn't he and his wife speak French to the girls? The main reason is simply that even if you're fluent, it's an effort and not completely natural for two American native English speakers to speak in a foreign language in the house. And both of us often regret that we didn't have the strength and determination to, to do that because it would have been an amazing language gift to the kids. But we, we didn't because we had other priorities and we're you know trying to navigate jobs and parenthood and everything else and mm-hmm. and and we just didn't have it in ourselves to do that despite david and his wife not giving the gift of bilingualism to their daughters in the beginning david is making up for lost time i think it was 2 years ago 2 summers ago i i put together a trip where the entire itinerary was visiting good friends of mine who had children the same age yeah, because when you take kids to France, you know, you could take them to the Louvre and you could take, take them to nice restaurants. And, you know, at the end of the day, they pretty much prefer their iPad. But if you take them to wonderful places and wonderful families and they're interacting in a fantastic way with kids their own age, mm-hmm. that's, when the mag- that's when the magic happens. 
Those of us who were not given the gift early in our lives can get it later, but we have to earn it. We take language classes, and then, after classes, we must venture out. I had a chance last year to interview one of our nation's top scholars on the subject of bilingualism. Her name is Guadalupe Valdez. She's a professor at Stanford. I asked her if America is doomed to remain a majority monolingual nation. She answered, we are, so long as we teach language as a subject. She meant that language is not so much something to learn as something to learn with. That's what David did at his French business school, and it's what his teenage daughter is about to do this summer. Well, Alexandra is 15, and we just enrolled her uh, a week ago uh, for a week or two program in the south of France where she'll be learning to sail. And she's a little scared because, you know, she doesn't know how to sail, so she'll be learning something in a foreign language, which, mm -hmm. <laughs> as you know, I, I know is daunting. And what should life be if not daunting? A shout out to America's hardworking language teachers. The American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, their acronym ACFL is easier to remember. The leadership of ACFL provides necessary encouragement to the small team that produces this podcast. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does sound design and mixing. Our editorial consultants are Maya Thomas and Mim Harrison, research assistance from Alma Flores Perez. Our graphic arts are created by Carlos Plaza and Ruth Kim. Music in this episode by Kevin McLeod, Marco Raphorst, Francisco Penilla, Fatal Injection, Chris Zabriski, and Andy G. Cohen under Creative Commons license. Direct links to their music plus more information about this episode at americathebilingual.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It will help other recovering monolinguals find this show. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.